0: This morning, we're going to turn our focus not so much on us as a church community, but more outward, and consider what this means for our relationship with those who are not Christians. Because if we're honest, we have to recognize that as disciples of Jesus, as Christians, as the church, our relationship with non-Christians has not always been healthy. On the one hand, our lives and our priorities and our beliefs and our values can look very much like the world but on the other hand, we can also respond to the world and to non-Christians in sinful anger. And so we'll condemn the world and we'll, we'll respond with a hostility that does not reflect the love of God. Or we can do this. We can just sort of say, you know what, world, you can just sort of do your own thing over there, have fun going to hell. I'm going to go over here and hang out in my own sort of little camp and sort of build walls around myself and the church can build walls around itself. And look, none of those things... Our godly responses. None of those things are godly relationships with non-Christians. We need something more biblical. We need to be reformed in, reformed in our relationships with non-Christians by the gospel and by the word of God. And look, this is especially important right now when we consider the direction our culture is headed. This is what Stephen McAlpin, who is a, a theologian in Australia, pointed out about just the, the direction of our culture. He says, in the last five or six years, the culture is increasingly interested in bringing the church back into the public square. Yes, you heard that right. But not in order to hear it, but rather in order to flay it, expose its real and alleged abuses, and to render it naked and shivering before a jeering crowd. It is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego standing up before the statue of gold, whilst everyone else is groveling and going, Psst, kneel down for goodness' sake. It is officials conspiring with the king to show that Daniel's act of praying towards Jerusalem three times per day is not simply an archaic foolish hope, but a very real threat to the order of the society and the new moral order that will hold it together. Look, there was a time when the church was sort of seen as backwards, as ignorant. Christians were sort of viewed like Ned Flanders from The Simpsons. Friendly people, but a little bit judgmental and horribly backward and naive. But that's not the case anymore. Things have rapidly changed, and especially over the past five or six years, now we aren't seen as sort of just ignorant and silly and backward and antiquated. Now we're seen as threats. Now now we're viewed as being bigots, those who actually want to harm people and withhold rights and prevent people from living out and being happy and, and sort of living out their identity. And so now we are seeing Christians and Christian business owners who are being sued out of existence. We're seeing Christian adoption agencies being forced to recognize homosexual marriage. We're seeing Christians lose their jobs or Christian leaders being removed from positions because of their stand for biblical ethics. Look, I'm not trying to be doom and gloom, but we need to be honest about the direction of our culture. And in many ways, we can praise God because here in our context... It's not as bad. The hostility isn't as strong in our context, and so that's, that's a grace of God to us, but we would be naive to think that things won't change. And so we have to ask ourselves, church, how are we going to respond? Who are we going to be in the midst of this culture that is changing? What are our relationships with non-Christians and a hostile, increasingly hostile culture going to look like in the context of Colossians 3, the Apostle Paul is writing to a church. And so we can just say in the, the context of the whole entire letter of Colossians, the Apostle Paul is writing to a church that existed in a hostile culture. Not only that, Paul was writing from prison. Paul was, had been locked up for preaching the gospel. And so look, God's word to us this morning is not some just sort of naive pie-in-the-sky niceness. It is written from a man who had been ridiculed and mocked and persecuted and beaten, who would be executed for his faith, to a group of Christians who are facing hostility. God's word to us this morning is as relevant as ever. And so it is important for us to key in and hear what God has to say to us from this passage. So how do we relate to non-Christians? How does the gospel reform our relationships to, as this passage calls, outsiders? Well, here's the main idea for us. The gospel reforms our relationships with non-Christians as we walk in prayerful, gracious wisdom. Now, I should stop here too and just address, if you're in the room, if you're on live stream, and you would say, hey, I don't profess to be a Christian. I'm here, but I don't profess faith. Hey, again, welcome. We're glad you're here. And what I hope you hear in this message is the heart that we want to have towards you. The the heart that God has towards you, and and the way that we seek to be shaped by the gospel in our relationship with you, which we want to love you, but we also want to be completely honest up and upfront. We want you to know Christ. We want you to turn from your sin and turn to Jesus and experience his grace and the transforming power of the gospel. So we're going to be open and honest about that. But I hope that this morning you learn just a little bit more about how God's word speaks to the relationship between Christians and non-Christians. So let's unpack this main idea. And the first thing that I want to highlight here is the prayerfulness in which we are called to. In verse 2, Paul calls for dedication to prayer. He says, devote yourselves to prayer. Stay alert in it with thanksgiving. And so first, the devotion to prayer here is not necessarily just related to relationships with non-Christians, but it's an important aspect of it. Because look, if you follow Christ, here is what is true. Your relationship with Jesus is intimately connected to your relationship with non-Christians, meaning your relationship with non-Christians isn't something separate from following Christ. It's part of following Christ. And so the health of your relationship with non-Christians is determined by the health of your relationship to Jesus. Or to put it another way, and to use the language of this series, as the gospel reforms us and transforms us, it transforms our relationships with non-Christians. And friends, prayer is vital, vital, absolutely essential to our life as a Christian, as a disciple of Jesus. It's vital to our relationship and our faithfulness to Jesus. We, we can't experience gospel transformation. We can't experience gospel renewal apart from prayer. Here, here's what Tim Keller says about the importance of prayer. Prayer is the only entryway into genuine self-knowledge. It is also the main way we experience deep change, the reordering of our loves. Prayer is how God gives us so many of the unimaginable things he has for us. Indeed, prayer makes it safe for God to give us many of the things we most desire. It is the way we know God, the way we finally treat God as God. Prayer is simply the key to everything we need to do and be in life. And so we start with prayer because, friends, in prayer we experience the love and the grace and the mercy and the power of our God. It is in prayer that that we experience our heart being transformed by the gospel, being reordered away from pride and idolatry and sexual immorality and lying and anger and bitterness and unforgiveness And being transformed into those who show kindness and compassion and love and gentleness and patience and forgiveness. It is in prayer that we experience the power of the Holy Spirit to live as Christ called us to live and to go and to be on mission. Friends, it is in prayer that we experience the fullness of life in Christ. In the power that we need. And so when Paul says, be devoted in prayer, he's pointing to this absolutely essential fact that our life in Christ is dependent upon prayer. We cannot live, we cannot thrive in Christ apart from prayer. And we are exhorted not only to devote ourselves to prayer, but to stay alert in it with thanksgiving. And so stay alert, or some translations say, be watchful. The, The idea here is to be awake, be alert, Be paying attention, be sober-minded, be be aware of what's happening around you. Often in the New Testament, this this phrase is used in reference to being ready for the return of Christ. And so to be alert means to be living as one who not only believes Jesus is gonna return, but you're living your life through worship and faithfulness to Christ as one who's ready for him to return. And so being alert simply means this. I know what time it is. Like, I know what time I am living in. I have a sense of where I am in history. Now, we don't know when Jesus is going to return. We don't know exactly when he is coming back. But we do know he is coming back. We do have that hope. And the fact that he is coming back also points to something very important that he's come that he has come and he has walked this earth and lived a perfect life for us in our place and that he has died for our sin to be the payment of our sin and he is resurrected and reigning victorious over every sin and every evil and every power and over death itself and that one day he is returning and we know that he has poured out the spirit on his people we know that the kingdom of god is here and it's advancing that the gospel is going forward throughout the earth and sinners are coming to know Christ and God is saving a people. And we know that until Christ returns, we have been called to join God on mission, to take the gospel into the world and make disciples. And we're seeing sinners saved and the church is being built. And as Jesus promised, the gates of hell are not going to stand against it. This is what time we live in. And so to be alert is to know and to be aware, hey, this is the time I live in. And rather than being passive, rather than sort of just going through my day, going from one thing to the next, or living for the moment, or living for the weekend, or living for the next bigger and better thing, no, I'm living with a sense of purpose, a sense of mission. I know that the time is short. And I know this is the time to be on mission for the glory of God. And so when we are alert, when when we're prayerfully alert, we're alert to the time, to the mission and the purpose. We're alert to the importance of walking in godliness. We're alert to the time that, look, we're going to be opposed and there's going to be challenge and there's going to be hardship. And in prayer, we grow in that alertness. We grow in that sensitivity and that awareness of what time it is, what time in history, and what it means to live right now. And how does that affect our relationships with non Christians? How does being alert, prayerfully alert, affect us? Well, one, we're no longer passive. We're no longer passive in our relationships. We're not passive in the relationships we have with those who are non Christians. We're not indifferent to their lives and to their souls. No, we know the time is short. We know Christ is returning and we also know that this is the time that the gospel is going forward, that the spirit is regenerating and renewing people and bringing them in to fellowship and a saving knowledge of Christ. We know that this is the time we live in and so, hey, I'm going to preach the gospel. I'm going to be intentional and I'm going to develop friendships and I'm going to actually love and care and serve and know people who don't know Christ that I may hold the gospel out for them. And so being alert means I'm being intentional, I'm being purposeful. I care deeply about those who don't know Christ because when he returns, I want them to be raised up and know him. And we also know this, that it's going to be hard. We're gonna face opposition. There's no way to escape it. We know there's gonna be challenge and there's opposition, but we also know that we have hope because Jesus saves and he's promised to save and he's returning. And so in addition to being alert in prayer, we also pray with thanksgiving. And you may have noticed this. If you've been with us throughout the series, you may have noticed that the word thankful or thanksgiving shows up multiple times in Colossians 3, three times to be exact. This is something that Paul emphasizes multiple times. Why is that? Why does he emphasize thankfulness? Well, here's the truth, friends. If you are in Christ, thankfulness Orient your heart all the more towards the love and grace of God towards you. If you are thankful to the Lord, you more deeply experience that love and that grace and that joy and that peace and that sense of worship towards God. That if you walk in thankfulness towards the Lord, your heart is being more and more oriented away from sin and pride and selfishness and idolatry and greed and sexual immorality and bitterness and unforgiveness. In thankfulness, if you walk in thankfulness, your heart is all the more shaped in kindness, in compassion, in love, in forgiveness. Thankfulness transforms us. Thankfulness strengthens us in Christ. So it is vital as we think about what it means to be reformed by the gospel. Thankfulness is a key piece of this. But here's what else. Do you know who the best evangelists are? Not necessarily the ones with the most knowledge, not the ones with the, that are the best communicators, not the ones that are great in a debate and can think on their feet, but the most thankful people. The ones that are so aware of God's grace to them, so aware of God's love and mercy that has been poured out of them. Those who recognize that though they are a sinner, that, that they have been given over to sin and things like idolatry and pride and selfishness, though they, they deserved judgment and hell, that God in his abundant grace and mercy and richness sent Jesus to save them, to rescue and redeem them and set them free from sin and make them a child of God. Those people who are aware of that and are thankful are the best evangelists. And there are some of you in this church that model that week in and week out. And I am grateful for you. When we're thankful, when we're so caught up in the grace of God and we're aware of what he has done to save us, and thankfulness pours out of us and joy pours out of us, what do we want to do? We want to go tell other people. When I can't help but speak of Jesus and live for Jesus because I'm thankful, I'm going to share the gospel. And so growing in thankfulness is going to make us more likely to go and share the gospel. Could it be, friends, could it be that we are cold to evangelism, and relationships with non-Christians because we're more fearful than thankful? Could it be that we're more aware of evil and sin than we are the grace and power of God? What would it look like for us to, in prayer, cultivate a deep, deep thankfulness and let that compel us to go and share the gospel and to love those who are far from Christ? And so let me encourage you, in prayer... Seek to cultivate thankfulness. Let the root of thankfulness go deep down into your heart in prayer that that may compel you to go into your community, into your neighborhoods, into your jobs, into whatever sphere of world that God has called you into and share the gospel with those who don't know Christ because you're so amazed at his grace. You're so thankful for the salvation that he has poured out on you. You want other people to experience it. And so being prayerful... It orients our hearts in alertness and thankfulness. It also connects us to the power we need to share the gospel. In verses 3 and 4, Paul writes this. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open a door to us for the word, to speak the mystery of Christ, for which I am in chains, so that I may make it known as I should. So I want to point out three things about what Paul says here. First, Paul recognized the need for God's power to move. In order for the gospel to go forward. Second, Paul was aware that God's power, that very power that he needed, works through prayers, works through people's prayers. And the third thing here, Paul is in prison, but rather than seeing his imprisonment as a threat to the gospel, he saw it as an opportunity for the gospel. Paul didn't see those who had imprisoned him as enemies and threats to run away from. No, he saw them as people who were blinded and imprisoned by their sin who needed the gospel. And so opposition wasn't threat to Paul, something to run away from, it was opportunity for the gospel. How do we see opposition as opportunity? Through prayer. How does the gospel break into opposition, shine the light of the gospel and the truth of the gospel, and save and transform? Through prayer. This is the power of prayer in our mission. This is the way God uses prayer. This is how John Dixon, in his book, The Best Kept Secret of Christian Mission, puts it. In prayer, we lift the work of the gospel above mere circumstances and into the hands of the one who governs everything. An open door for the message, even though the chief messenger is locked up in chains, only prayer can ensure such a beautifully illogical reality. Paul was confident that through the intercessions of other believers, God's word would never be constrained by mere circumstances. Through prayer, through prayer, we show our dependence We recognize that the only way we or anybody else is saved is through the sovereign power of God. And prayer roots us in that reality. But in prayer, here's what we also do we act in faith and hope and belief that the power of the gospel is going to break through opposition, break through challenge, break through hardship, and shine a light and save sinners. So when we pray, when we are prayerful, when we're devoted to prayer, We are acting in faith, believing and knowing and having confidence that God works through opposition. And so don't miss this, friends. Yes, God is sovereign over salvation. We absolutely believe that. But don't miss that he works through prayer. He uses your prayer. Your prayers matter. He has ordained that through the prayers of his people, his sovereign power to save would work and would flow and would move. Your prayers matter. Through prayer, obstacles and oppositions and challenges and hardships and hardness of heart become opportunity. Do you, do we, see opposition as threat or opportunity? Oh, we are so aware of threats, and I think as the culture becomes increasingly hostile, our radar is up on the threats. But in those threats, in that opposition, do we see opportunity? What would it look like for us to pray for opportunities in the very places where opposition is rising? What would it look like for us to pray for opportunities, for doors to be opened in the situations that seem the most challenging and the most difficult? For the people that you believe have just could never be saved or that maybe you've written them off and think there's no way God's saving that person. What would it look like for us to pray for opportunities and believe that that is where God is? and his power and the gospel will go and will save. Friends, if we give ourselves to prayer, believing that God opens doors and uses opposition as opportunities and shines the light of the gospel, would that not change our relationship with non-Christians? Would that not cause us, rather than to run away or to stiff arm or remove ourselves, but to draw near to people, draw near to people in friendship to know them, to love them, to serve them, and to hold the gospel out for them that they might know Christ, if we believe that the power of the gospel is greater than any opposition, if we believe that at that place of opposition, God is actually going to flex his glory all the more beautifully to save, would we not give ourselves to prayer and go and share the gospel with those who don't know Christ? Friends, this is who our God is. This is the God who loves to put his glory on display in the very places where it seems the darkest, the most challenging. In opposition, the gospel shines all the more beautifully. Do you believe that? Do we believe that? Let us be devoted to prayer that our hearts may be shaped in that truth and that confidence. So, we're prayerful. The second piece of this main idea is gracious wisdom. What it means to be graciously wise, So as the Apostle Paul says in verse five, "Act wisely toward outsiders, making the most of the time. And an aspect of being alert of being awake, being aware is to walk in wisdom towards those who do not believe in Christ. And walking in wisdom is to walk in a way that is good and is godly and is appropriate and is effective and is helpful. And walking in wisdom is important because life is complicated. Life isn't easy. And and sometimes there are situations and decisions and it isn't always clear on what we should do. And wisdom helps us navigate those things. And look, if you are developing friendships with non-Christians, if you seek to take the gospel to this world, you're going to recognize it's hard. It's complicated. It's not always clear how we should be in certain situations. And in an, an increasingly hostile and complex culture, Man, wisdom is so important, but it's hard to come by. Wisdom isn't easy. You see, wisdom requires that we actually slow down and reflect and spend time in prayer and we meditate on God's truth and we ask questions and we seek counsel. Wisdom is hard fought and slowly gained. How different than our culture How different than our world that is defined by hasty thoughts, impulsive decisions, and rash judgments? One of the sad realities of our current culture is becoming increasingly more difficult and even unpopular to develop meaningful relationships with people who see the world fundamentally different than you and maybe you have significant disagreements with. And too often, Christians, rather than walking in wisdom in those relationships, fall into the cultural mindset. I mean, why walk in wisdom when it's so much better, so much easier to throw well-placed social media bombs where we can smite the liberals and smite the non-Christians as Samson smote the Philistines? Why slow down and gain wisdom when we can throw out the hottest of hot takes? Why pursue wisdom when it's so much easier to just either go along with the world and adopt its values and its beliefs and its priorities, or, or, or we can just sort of like stiff arm the world and take a step back and build walls around ourselves, that's so much easier. That doesn't take wisdom. Friends, are we taking the easy way out? To, to sort of use a cliche. Are, are we doing what is easier Are are we saying, man, I want to go that route rather than go the route of hard-fought wisdom and devoted prayer and self-sacrificial love? But when we do that, when we fail to walk in wisdom, how we do damage? We do damage to ourselves, we do damage to our relationships, and we do damage to the witness of the gospel. When we fail to walk in wisdom, bad things happen. Here's how Ray Ortland puts it. If we have love but not wisdom, we will harm people with the best intentions. If we have courage but not wisdom, we will blunder boldly. If we have truth but not wisdom, we will make the gospel ugly to other people. If we have technology but not wisdom, we will use the best communications ever invented to broadcast stupidity. Friends, when God's people fail to walk in wisdom, here's what we do. We minimize the gospel. We minimize the gospel. We begin to make light of the power of God's love and his grace and his mercy. We shallow out and hollow out the truth and the depth of God's word and we don't make the, most, the best use of the time. Friends, when we fail to walk in wisdom, rather than living with gospel intentionality and gospel purposefulness, we'll spend our times piddling about with selfishness and superficial and shallow things. When we fail to walk in wisdom, what we're going to do is we're going to make the world think that there are other things more glorious than our king, more glorious than our savior. And what we end up declaring is that Jesus is an insignificant king and there's an insignificant salvation. This is the damage we do when we don't walk in wisdom. But brothers and sisters, for those of you that call on the name of the Lord with such riches in the gospel, with such wisdom in God's word, let us be people of wisdom. In our relationships with non-Christians, let us be people who act wisely. In prayer, in worship, in God's word, let's commune deeply because we know that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Let us be willing to slow down Be thoughtful, be prayerful. Let us be willing to enter into the furnace of experience and failure in order to gain wisdom. And in our wisdom, let us be gracious. Let us be gracious in our wisdom. As Paul instructs in verse 6, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you should answer each person. Salt as you know gives flavor to food. It makes it more enjoyable. Salt, when you sprinkle salt on something, the flavor comes out. And so salty speech is flavorful speech. It's speech that is enjoyable, even when you disagree with it. I was reminded of my experience in grad school at the University of South Dakota, and my favorite professor, who also became the, the chair of my thesis committee, Uh, This is what he said on the first day of class. He's like, welcome to contemporary criticism. Just so you all know, I am a flaming Marxist, so you'll have to get used to that. And and as a Christian and someone who is politically conservative, I was like, oh great, this is gonna be a lot of fun. And you know what? It was. It was the most enjoyable class I took in grad school. It was so much fun, and I learned way more about Marxism than I could ever want to know, because my professor was gracious. He wasn't a Christian. But he was gracious and so disagreeing with him, engaging in him with ideas was enjoyable because he showed respect and grace to the class. Friends, brothers and sisters, we are children of grace our language should be the saltiest of everyone. we should be able to outsalt everybody. Our speech should be the most gracious because we have been transformed by the grace of God. let your speech. Always be seasoned with salt. Not just when you're in a good mood, not just when you've had enough sleep, not just when the other person is being gracious. Always be gracious. And notice what graciousness opens us up to. Let your speech be gracious so that you may know how you should answer each person. Grace, graciousness opens us up to wisdom. You cannot be wise apart from graciousness. You see, when you aren't gracious in your speech, what do you end up doing? You say things that aren't good, that aren't godly, that aren't helpful, that aren't appropriate, that aren't effective. You start speaking at people rather than to them. You stop listening and stop caring about them, and all you want to do is win an argument. But when you speak with grace and you open yourself up to wisdom, what do you do? You slow down. You actually start listening, hearing, getting to know someone. And then so when you speak gospel truth, you're speaking to them. You're speaking and understanding where they are, and you're speaking it to their situation, to their heart. Rather than speaking at them, you're speaking with them. This is what graciousness does. It makes us wise. And so let us be graciously wise in our speech. Prayerfully, let us exercise gracious wisdom with non-Christians, learning when to speak and when not to speak. For the heart of the righteous ponders how to answer, but the mouth of the wicked pours out evil things. When we do speak, let's not, hold, let's not hold back, but let's speak the truth and the wisdom of the gospel, for the mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life. Let us be patient when we speak, for a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh answer stirs up, stirs up anger. Let us be clear and direct with our speech, for better and open rebuke than concealed love. And faithful are the wounds of a friend. And gracious wisdom, let us love and serve and befriend those who are non-Christians. Let us get to know them. Let us laugh with them. Let us rejoice with them. Let's weep with them. Let's develop meaningful relationships with them. Let's not keep people at a distance, but welcome them into our lives and into our homes and into the community of First City Church at the same time. Wisdom does call us to this, to consider. As iron sharpens iron, so does one man sharpen his friend. This analogy works both ways. This proverb works both ways. On the one hand, a friend can sharpen you in wisdom and godliness. On the other hand, they can dull you to wisdom and godliness. And so listen, brothers and sisters, we absolutely need to be developing friendships, real, genuine friendships with those who are not Christian. But wisdom also calls us to not be dulled by them. To not be dulled and pulled away from Christ and pulled away from wisdom and pulled away from godliness. Rather, we are to hold out Christ. We are to sharpen them and pull them towards Jesus. We are to put Christ on display and speak truth to them so that they are being shaped and formed by gospel truth. And so let us be wise in our relationships with non-Christians. And what a contrast it would be. Oh Friends, just imagine this contrast. What a contrast if we, rather than acting in the foolishness and the conflict that defines our culture, acted graciously wise in our relationships with those who fundamentally see the world differently than us, who have significant disagreements with us. But in that gracious wisdom, we held out kindness and compassion and love and gentleness and patience and forgiveness as we told other people about Jesus. Because as I said, friends, I don't know how hostile our culture is going to get. I don't know how bad things are going to get, but here's what I do know. For over 2,000 years, the church has been facing opposition. Satan and sin and evil have been bearing down on the people of God from the beginning, but it's Christ's promise: the gates of hell are not going to prevail. We have a resurrected, reigning, sovereign king over every square inch of this universe, and he is victorious, and one day he's returning. And so in that hope, friends... In the power that we have in the gospel, in the power that we have by the Holy Spirit, let us be prayerful and let us be graciously wise as we befriend those who are far from Christ and we take the gospel into this world. Amen? Let's pray.